The Anatomy of Frustration, 1968. The United States is in a deep moral crisis, and I speak with a heavy heart. Many younger Negroes today in deep frustration, sincerely, gropingly, tragically, have adopted some of the negative and degrading concepts which have brutalized and enslaved them, believing somehow that these concepts can bring them freedom. We must try to analyze the problem. We would be mistaken to think that the only desires of young Negroes today are to have a job, to have a decent house, to be well-educated, to have medical care. All these things are very important, but deeper and more profound is the feeling of young Negroes today through all classes, from the lumpen proletariat to the working poor, the working classes, the middle classes, and the intelligentsia, that the time has come when they must demand recognition of their dignity and when they should have power, a voice in the solution of problems which affect them. The tragedy is that those who are in deepest revolt are responding not only to the frustrations of their objective situation, but more fundamentally to the morality of a society which is teaching them that violence is the only effective force for social change. This society is systematically teaching them that it will respond only to tactics of desperation and violence. This is not only true for Negroes. Many of us have been concerned for years about Columbia University taking all the land around its Harlem site and running people out of their homes to build high-rise structures exclusively for white people. We warned Columbia officials that a problem would occur, but the great educators at Columbia did not respond to our pleas. They waited until 200 students, using the tactics of desperation, closed down the university. Then they were ready to talk. Then they were ready to discuss whether there ought to be a building where Columbia students, predominantly white, would enter from the top into one gym and where Negroes from Harlem would enter at the bottom of the same structure into a separate gym. They should have known that such separated facilities would create problems. In New York, a. Philip Randolph and I had for five years tried to get the police department to upgrade Negro patrolmen. We urged that a Negro be made head of the police force in Harlem for psychological reasons. It was not done. But two weeks after the riot in 1964, they upgraded a Negro lieutenant, made him a captain, and put him in charge of the central Harlem precinct. I then received a letter from a youth group saying, you and Randolph failed. You should roll over and get the hell out of the way for your methods don't work. We upgraded a Negro policeman with sticks and stones and Molotov cocktails. So this is the lesson we are teaching, that when the liberal forces of this nation join in coalition and urge that something be done, they are ignored. But when people riot, something is done. Basic needs may not be met, yet minor and often insignificant concessions are made. Negro women in Watts making $55 and $60 a week as maids were spending up to 26 of those dollars on taxis from the Negro ghetto to the white homes where they worked, all because no one had provided a transportation system for Watts. When Martin Luther King and I went to Watts and told the young Negroes they must put an end to rioting, that it was destroying their own community, they said, go back where you came from. We are winning. One of them lit a match held it up, 
and said, this is our manifesto and it's winning. And he went on to say that if you went out into the streets, you would find sociologists, economists, city planners, hospital experts, transportation experts, all there because of our manifesto. The fact is that before the riot, there were groups in Watts which urged the city to do something about conditions. They were ignored. The action for dealing with the problem of justice must come quickly and before more rioting, lest we further teach people that the only viable method of social change is an act of desperation. What I know and what you ought to know is the tragedy of a society which will not make basic changes, but will make promises and token concessions. So long as the rioting goes to point X, but when it reaches X plus one, we are all in trouble. For then there will be the most vigorous repression. Then there will be vigilantism. Even more important, you cannot repress one-tenth of the population, no matter how badly elements of it behave, without threatening the civil liberties of everyone in the nation. Where there are not civil liberties, we cannot make social progress. What must be understood is the anatomy of frustration. And here's where the Jewish problem can be put into focus. I'm not one who goes around apologizing for or explaining away Negro anti-Semitism. It is here. It is dangerous. It must be rooted out. We cannot say it is somehow different or not really important. We cannot sweep it under the rug. What we can and had better do is understand it if we are to deal with it. The first thing about those who are frustrated is that their frustration causes them to adopt a psychology an economics, and a sociology based on the thinking of the frustrated. It goes like this. The United States is no longer viable. Negroes are never going to get their rights. All institutions must be destroyed and new ones established. The death of Dr. Martin Luther King spurred that philosophy to its logical conclusion. Stokely Carmichael is reported to have said, if they wanted to brutalize a black man, why didn't they get me or Rap Brown? We're the really dangerous ones to this social order. The fact that they got king indicates that Negroes will never get anything in this society and they are out to exterminate us all. So the first point of the frustrated is that the society is not viable. Second, if the society is not viable, then no program needs to be projected because to project a program is to fool the masses of Negroes. So they viciously attacked the freedom budget put forth by A. Philip Randolph. To them, Randolph and I became the major enemies because we were putting forth a program. And to put forth a program when you know nothing will move is dishonest. Third, if the nation is not viable and no program is needed, then all those people who have worked over the years for civil rights and are still working for integration into this society become the enemy. Not the Ku Klux Klan, not the John Birch Society, but those closest to you. This is what Jews need to understand, that in the list of whom you attack, those you love come first. You attack those you have expected something from, you attack those who have in fact carried the banner. Before King's death, he and his nonviolence were the first enemy precisely because he had done the most. The argument went that if, after all the bloodshed, the bombings, 
the tear gas, the water hosings, and the dogs, King could not produce real victories, then he had fooled his people, exposed them to useless sacrifice. After his death, of course, a new situation was created. Now they had the opportunity to shift gears, to say that the greatest Negro was killed by a white, but when King was alive, it was a different story. Next in the list of enemies of the frustrated come Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, A. Philip Randolph. They are now the traitors to the cause. Listed, too, are the liberal community, which has fought side by side with us, and the Jews, who have made greater contributions than anybody else in the liberal community. Because of this reverse hate-affection syndrome, Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, A. Philip Randolph, the liberals, the Jews, the labor leaders who lifted almost two million Negroes out of the lumpen proletariat into the working classes are all bastards now. The point is that if Jews are under attack by the extreme left in the Negro community, they are in the same basket with Negro leaders and even the most progressive political leadership. Jews are not likely to feel better simply because others are also under attack. Nevertheless, there ought to be an understanding of what the problem really is. In the anatomy of frustration, the longtime leadership is rejected. But heroes must be found somewhere, and so the frustrated adopt heroes of foreign revolutions, not because they live in their philosophy, but because they want to adopt the extreme tactics that they believe have worked for those heroes. Thus, Che Guevara, Mao Zedong, Castro and Fanon become heroes. This doesn't make the militants communists. It means rather that they are so desperate for new methods that they reach into completely different kinds of situations, hoping that those tactics can be applied here. Of course, they cannot be, but the frustrated by the anatomy of frustration are convinced that the only thing left to do is to give everybody hell to denounce everybody, and to call for revolt. Consider the question of the Jew in the ghetto. Nothing that I say is justification for anti-Semitism, for I know that in a situation where anti-Semitism exists, none of us is safe. Anti-Semitism must be rooted out. We have, however, an obligation to try and understand Negro anti-Semitism without excusing it. If you happen to be an uneducated, poorly trained Negro living in the ghetto, and particularly if you live by your wits, selling numbers, selling dope, engaging in prostitution, then you only see four kinds of white people, the policeman, the businessman, the teacher, and the welfare worker. In many cities, three of those four are predominantly Jewish. Except for the policeman, the majority of the businessmen teachers, and welfare workers are Jewish. Here again is the hate-love syndrome. 90% of the crimes that Negroes commit are against other Negroes in the ghetto. Negroes therefore both hate and depend on policemen. To have to depend on someone whom you dislike and who often brutalizes you is ghastly. Then comes the businessmen. Many ghetto Negroes know nothing but capitalization. The fact is, if you walk up 125th Street, you will see what Negroes say you will see. 
A television set that sells in department stores for $79.50 costs $132 in Harlem. But the ghetto dweller does not know that the department store is able to sell the TV set at $79.50 because the buyer makes a considerable down payment and is required to finish payments within one year. While the ghetto buyer is often given, with no down payment, three or four years in which to pay. He may not understand that as the length of time for payment is increased, the interest is increased. He does not always understand that only such long-term capitalization makes it possible for him to have a TV set at all. Many people are kept alive for three and four weeks at a time by local businessmen who let them pile up a debt until they hit the numbers or something and can pay for what they bought. But if you hit the numbers once in a year and have to give most of the money to the grocer for things you have already eaten, when there are still more things you need, you hate him for taking your money, even though you know it belongs to him. The chief characteristic of every ghetto and of every major poor area is that people operate on the principle of immediate gratification. If you have little money, you operate on immediate gratification. You don't buy a new sheet until the old sheet is in shreds. You don't buy salt until you're at dinner and the salt runs out. Nobody can save up enough money to take advantage of a sale. You've got to buy things when you need them. The tragedy is that the need to live always on the principle of immediate gratification can sometimes be frightening. A young fellow I got a job for came to see me a week after receiving his first two weeks pay, $125. He came to thank me for the job and to show me what he had bought for himself. He had gone into a store on 125th Street and paid $67.50 for a pair of alligator shoes. Now this may shock you, unless you never had anything but sneakers, usually with holes in them, and day after day you have been walking past the shoe store seeing something beautiful there. To pay $67.50 for shoes may be uneconomical, but is psychologically understandable. He held those shoes to his breast, waiting for me to rave about them. And I did. I knew that at a later time I would have to talk to him about the wise use of money but I wasn't going to destroy his moment of immediate gratification. For him, a moment of great beauty. Next comes the teacher. In the ghetto, one does not lay the blame on the Board of Education and the whole corrupt system or realize that no matter how much a teacher wants to teach, she cannot in those conditions. One does not realize that it is not the teacher's fault that a child has no breakfast and may not have lunch that he may have to go to the pool room to bum money for potato chips and an orange soda, which may be all he eats that day. How can you teach such a child? How can you teach children when you have 40 in a class and two disrupted children who need psychiatric care? The ghetto mother knows only that the teacher is there and is Jewish, and she does not think the Jewish teacher cares whether her child learns or not. Then comes the welfare worker. If you know anything about welfare, you know that spying is part of the system. Sneaking around on weekends to find out if there are men's shoes or pants hanging in the closet or whether a man has been in the house for the weekend is part of the job. One method by which the relief rolls are decreased is finding a man in the house. 
We must get at these problems not on the basis of urging people merely to change their attitudes or of misinterpreting the Kerner report on civil disorders. That report does not say that Americans are racist. If it did, the only answer would be to line everybody up, all 200 million of us, then line up 200,000 psychiatrists and have us all lie on couches for 10 years trying to understand the problem and for 10 years more learning how to deal with it. All over the country, people are beating their breasts, crying, mea culpa, I'm so sorry that I am a racist, which means really that they want to cop out because if racism is to be solved on an individual psychological basis, then there is little hope. What the Kerner Report is really saying is that the institutions of America brutalize not only Negroes, but also whites who are not racists, who in many communities have to use racist institutions. When it is put on that basis, we know we cannot solve the fundamental problem by sitting around examining our innards, but by getting out and fighting for institutional change. I am all in favor of Jewish businessmen doing what they can to find jobs here and there for Negroes. But if the choice were between putting energy into that effort and putting the weight of affluent Jewish businessmen behind fundamental social change in which the government becomes the employer of first and last resort for the hardcore poor, then I would propose the latter choice. Neither individuals nor the private sector of the economy has or can take responsibility for full employment in American society. This is the responsibility of all segments of the society and thus, finally, of the government. The Negro and the poor can be lifted out of poverty only when the government takes the responsibility of creating work for those whom the private sector can no longer use given the impact of automation and cybernation. American business will not buy sheer muscle power. The sale of muscle power began to diminish when sweatshops began to disappear. American capital is not going to put the undereducated back to work. The society must collectively do that. Private enterprise should do what it can, but there are extreme limitations. For example, we are not going to find homes for the poor until we have a national land use policy as well as a national migration policy. We talk about the urban crisis while Negroes in Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama are being run off the farms enforced by our present farm policy to Chicago, St. Louis, and New York. One half million Negroes are leaving the South annually, coming to New York, Chicago, and other ghettos. One half million coming in while only about 30,000 a year are going out of the ghettos into the suburbs. For those who don't take the trouble to find out, that is how ghettos grow larger with more frustration and more despair. Here are some of the things we're going to have to do in order to deal with white fear and Negro frustration. We must have a $2 minimum wage in this country. And small businessmen who cannot afford to pay this wage should be subsidized by the government just as it subsidizes millionaire railway men and millionaire farmers with price supports. We are going to have to have public works programs to put these people back to work and to do it without a lot of talk about pre-training.
These people don't have to be pre-trained. All they need is to know that there are jobs. John Dewey said that a man learns by doing. I want to go Dewey one better. We must put these people to work, learning while doing, and while being paid. In World War II, we did not ask whether people were too black, or too old, or too young, or too stupid to work. We simply said to them, this is a hammer, this is a tool, this is a drill. We built factories and sent these people into the factories. We paid them extraordinarily good wages, and in two months they created the miracle of making planes that flew. We can find a peacetime method for doing this. Public works for schools, hospitals, psychiatric clinics, new modes of transportation, of cleaning the air, of cleaning the rivers. All of these improvements would benefit not only the poor, but also the affluent. Furthermore, those who cannot work because they are too young, too old, or too sick, or who are female heads of large families must have guaranteed incomes. In addition, we must supply free medical care, and we must pay a salary to those capable of going through school. Beyond this, we must realize that the ghettos, with their high density of people per room, cannot be improved. We must create new towns and destroy the ghettos, providing work through construction projects and human services to human beings. Nothing short of this will be effective. These programs will cost us $18.5 billion a year beyond the present level of expenditure, and that money can come from the gross national product. But I want to assure businessmen that the people who benefit from the programs are not going to sit on the money when they get it. They're going to act like Americans. They're going to buy all the junk that is advertised, thereby raising the GNP raising the economic production and growth of the country, and fundamentally adding to its economic stability. The way things are now, we are twice damned. We are paying $15 billion a year for the support and misdeeds of those who cannot find work and end up in prison or on welfare. If they are provided with work and improve the economy, then we have additional growth, plus the $15 billion we are now paying for keeping them on welfare and in jail. For the things which must be done, I request the understanding, the cooperation, and the aid of Jews. I do so knowing that there is Negro anti-Semitism and knowing how Jews must feel when they hear some Negro extremist talk. To hear these young Negroes spouting material directly from Mein Kampf must bring terrible memories, shocking inner turmoil. But in times of confusion, I recommend to Jews what I do for myself in times of confusion. I go back and read the Jewish prophets, mainly Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah and Jeremiah have taught me to be against injustice wherever it is, and first of all, in myself. There is a moral problem in abandoning the fight against injustice merely because less than 2% of the Negroes in this country are engaging in anti-Semitism. It is a problem which Isaiah and Jeremiah would be the first to point out. The issue never was and never can be simply a problem of Jew and Gentile or black and white. 
The problem is man's inhumanity to man and must be fought from that basic principle regardless of race or creed. We must get on with the fight for a coalition of labor forces, of religious forces, of businessmen, of liberal and civil rights groups standing together. White fear, Negro frustration, and anti-Semitism will disappear, not because we rail against them, but because we bring about a social and economic program to neutralize them. What is truly at stake is whether we can band together in a great political movement to bring about the socialization of this nation where it needs to be socialized, or whether we are going to permit the nation we love to be torn asunder in a race war in which people who don't want to be on either side may be forced to take sides. That is our problem. That is our challenge.